Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Spanish Football Podcast. I'm Phil Kittramelides. I'm joined as ever by Sid Lowe. Hello Sydney. Hello Philip, how are you? I'm alright mate. I am still digesting what happened last night. And I'm not talking I'm not talking about my dinner. I'm talking about what an unbelievable... <laughs> Did you eat particularly late or something? Is there a reason why well, it's it still not come through? It is, Spain. But no, I'm <laughs> yeah. talking about the unbelievable Clasico uh, we witnessed at the Bernabeu between Real Madrid and Barcelona which Xavi Hernandez side won 4-0. It was such a momentous performance result and occasion that we are probably going to dedicate the vast majority of today's podcast talking about that. Uh, Fear not, though, if you've got questions you want to ask us about anything else or if we talk about the Classico and don't mention something you want us to, send us a question. We're going to be doing a big Q&A podcast tomorrow for our patrons at patreon.com forward slash TSFP. I also want to just quickly appeal to, to all the Barca fans who were patrons and stopped being patrons because they got depressed about Barca. You guys are back now, <laughs> all right? So you can come and join us. And I'm, and I'm not just making this up. There have been quite No, no, a few... we did have someone say that, didn't we? There's Actually, been more than one. Genuinely say it's too depressing yeah. to keep listening. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when you, if you are on our Patreon and then you leave and they give you a little exit survey, like, why have you stopped being a patron? Quite a few people have said Barca are rubbish. But you guys are back. As... Gerard Piquet tweeted last night, They literally he literally tweeted, we are back at 10.56 with the game barely over. I say he tweeted, I don't think it was him, I think it must have been someone from his team, but, but anyway. Barca are back after that huge performance, uh, there is loads for us to talk about. Bef- before we get to all of that, it would be remiss of me not to at least mention what happened uh, elsewhere on, on match day 29. Although it wasn't a classic match day of, of Spanish football, so there is every reason for us to focus uh, on the Clásico. Uh, on Friday night, Athletic Club and Getafe played out a 1-1 draw at San Mamés. Getafe still haven't won away from home. On Saturday, there was a really, really dramatic and enjoyable game at the Estadio Mendizorroza. All five goals coming in the second half as Granada beat Alavés by three goals to two. Alaves were 2-1 were up with 15 minutes to go. They ended up losing the game. A massive six-pointer at the bottom of the table. That was Valencia beating Elche by a goal to nil. An incredibly scruffy uh, Gonzalo Guedes goal. He literally just tripped over his feet and somehow ended the ball ended up in the back of the net. Osasuna beating Levante by three goals to one. And you were at Vallecasid to see Atletico Madrid beat Rayo by a goal to nil. On Sunday, Espanyol beat Mallorca uh, by a goal to nil. That means that Mallorca drop into the bottom three. Cadiz, for the first time in 14 weeks, are out of the relegation zone after beating Villarreal one nil. Uh, there were two nil-nil draws between Celta and Betis and Sevilla and La Real before we had that Classico, magnificent performance from Barca. Right, so we've already established that Barca are back, uh, as per PK's tweet. You were there, Sid. You experienced it fully. Now, you've seen many, 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 many Classicos over your time here in Spain. You've seen many big wins for Barcelona in this fixture. The the 2-6, the the 5-0, the the, the 0-4 as well from a couple of years ago in 2015 with with Rafa Benitez. Where does yesterday rank in Clasico victories for Barcelona? It's very difficult to answer that because it's kind of different to those ones. So, for example, the 5-0 
was a kind of a destruction of a Mourinho team early in the season for a team that was going to go and win the league. The 6-2 was the moment that defined that they would go and win that league. Of course, you've got the 2-0, which I know it's only 2-0, but the 2-0 in the Champions League semi-final. The Ronaldinho one, which was the kind of, the, if you like, the, the glory of, uh, of a player who was probably the best in the world at the time. Um, and so you've got these results that, that kind of fit a pattern of competitiveness and of the sense of the two teams at the top of their game. I guess what makes this one different is the fact that it was a little bit unexpected. The fact that it feels like it it maybe ushers in something new rather than being a product of the context that we thought surrounded this game. The fact that it came with Real Madrid 15 points clear of Barcelona. Exactly. <laughs> and so that changes things. And obviously, look, that may well have played a part in the way that this game was played. And, and, and Nacho certainly seemed to suggest as much post-game. He seemed to suggest that there was perhaps a degree of relaxation from Real Madrid because of the lead at the top of the table. I wonder now if maybe with hindsight we look back at what Xavi said and we see a degree of clever mind games in terms of trying to downplay the significance of this match for Real Madrid but make them favourites at the same time. Um, I mean, I don't think that was what he was doing but but who knows, we, we like to kind of assume that there's mind games at play even when most of the time there isn't. Um, and so it's difficult to place it but I think it, it is significant not least because if you go for it and I was thinking about this today each Barcelona manager has their has their really big win against Real Madrid. So obviously you've got Luis Enrique going to the Bernabeu and winning 4-0. You have Pep Guardiola going to the Bernabeu and winning 6-2. You have Johan Cruyff, the player, not the manager, winning 5-0. And then obviously Johan Cruyff, the manager, winning 5-0, albeit that's at home, not at the Bernabeu. And now Xavi has his. And he has his in his first derby, his first Clasico at Real Madrid. Obviously it's not his first because they played in Saudi Arabia. Um, it's the first in the so league. It's the first in the league. So I think the significance of this is that sense that it kind of, it's bigger almost because it goes against the expectations, but maybe it's less big because it actually doesn't lead to anything tangible, at least not yet. Hmm. Although that's not quite true because, as I'm sure you'll say, this reinforces Barcelona's position in the chase for the Champions League. It maybe gives them the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest hope of competing for the league title, but let's face it, it doesn't. Um, and, and what it really does, I think, is it doesn't give them the chance to win this year's league, but it probably does reinforce the fact that they will be a candidate for next year's, or they should be a candidate for next year's. They certainly should. Uh, we'll get to Barcelona in, in just a moment in more detail. Uh, I want to ask you first, though, about Real Madrid and and how Carlo Ancelotti set up for this game. Because yeah. he was missing Karim Benzema, obviously, an incredibly important player for Real Madrid, not just because of the goals he scores. He is the league's top goal scorer, but for many other things as well. Dear listener of the podcast, you know how good Karim Benzema is in other facets of play as well. He wasn't available. And so what Carlo Ancelotti did was to basically just destroy the team, trying to find a solution when, I know this is with hindsight, couldn't he have just played... Luka Jovic in that position and not sort of try and tinker with everything else. Just play a centre-forward. Karim Benzema's out. Play a centre-forward. You've got lots of options. Don't try and put Luka Modric as a false nine. Obviously, this is all with hindsight, but yeah. it seems very strange what he tried to do. Well, you say it's all with hindsight, but actually, <laughs> even, pre, even pre-game, we were discussing this. Um, yeah, I got, I got I, some I, info that this was going to yeah, happen. <laughs> I think I can understand part of what he was trying to do. I can understand the thought process behind it, even if I don't share that thought process, which is 
that you effectively add an extra midfielder, that in theory you gain a little bit more control because you play a line of three, which of course is Casemiro, Valverde to the right, cross to the left and Modric in front of them. He's not really at the very, very top of the pitch because he's slightly behind Vinicius and Rodrigo and you maintain that sense of those two playing a little bit wider. Maybe encouraged a bit to come a slightly narrower, but still playing a little bit wider as their starting point rather than as centre-forwards. Um, and that by doing that, you have an extra man in the middle. You try and get a bit of control against a team that, in theory, is good in the middle of the pitch. And that's one way of doing it. And you can continue to play to release, particularly Vinicius, because we didn't see a huge amount from Rodrigo. But what little we saw from Real Madrid, at least to start with, was Vinicius being released. And there's maybe mm-hmm. a degree of logic to that. The problem with that, of course, is that that extra midfielder being Modric, if you have him so kind of out of position, but not just out of position in terms of his actual natural position on the pitch... But I think almost kind of emotionally knocked out of position, if you see what I mean. Taken mm-hmm. away from all the people around him. Taken away from... Mm-hmm. Remember this, this concept I, I explained uh, on the podcast of quite a long time ago now, which was one that Michael Robinson once explained to me, the idea of reference points. And he said even players mm-hmm. who don't realise it have a reference point on the pitch. They have a sense of there are certain things or opponents or parts of a pitch which enable a player even if it's some, some subconscious level, to feel like they know where they are. Mm-hmm. And, and he would say, you know, sometimes with a winger, it's the touchline. And everything makes sense from the point of the touchline. He said for him as a centre-forward, it was actually the centre-back. He said he felt really uncomfortable mm-hmm. when he wasn't marked because he judged everything by the fact that there's a big guy behind him and therefore everything else must be more or less where I think it is. If the big guy just left him alone, he sort of didn't know what to do. And I felt a little mm-hmm. bit like that watching Modric yesterday. It's like, well, I'm not really where I should be. And the pieces around me are not really where they should be either. Um, And so Mm. that kind of idea of gaining control just didn't work. It obviously didn't work in terms of a presence further up the pitch because Luka Modric is not really going to do that. Um, If you're going to go for a false nine, which Ancelotti's done a couple of times before with with Isco and with not necessarily as a false nine, but Asensio as as a striker, then those are better options. Certainly... Asensio is. Although, did you hear um, Courtois post-game made the point, he said, we've tried a false nine before with Isco and it didn't work then either. He then, Courtois, slightly backed off and said, but tactical debates and discussions are for something for inside the dressing room, not here in front of the television. Uh, It's a little bit late, Thibaut, you've just said it, Um, but it didn't work. It really didn't work. Okay, we started off talking about that because that is the context within the game really uh, how, how, how Barcelona uh, performed they were able to really impose themselves on the bus on a Real Madrid side that looked that looked pretty lost uh, Luka Modric looking very lost indeed uh, Xavi has done really extraordinary things with this Barcelona side they've got more points than Real Madrid since he took over 36 points for Real Madrid 37 points for Barcelona all right you don't get any prizes for that no. but still it underlines the fact that what he's doing yeah. is working and it did work last night as well. Absolutely. I mean, and this is why when, when we had the build-up to this game and Xavi himself said this, there was this idea that this could not necessarily resuscitate Barcelona in terms of a, a, an attempt to win the league because, as you say, these points are useful now but not actually useful in, if, in terms of trying to win the league title. But it would reinforce the idea that we're on the right path, that something is happening, that the competitiveness is coming back. Mm-hmm. And remember after the Saudi Arabia game, mm-hmm. Gerard Piquet said, um, we lost, but we're getting closer to winning. Mm-hmm. And in Madrid, or in parts of, I, I shouldn't say Madrid, that's really not fair. It's a big city with all sorts of different views. But, but in parts of the Madrid media, there was a kind of a glee, a sort of a piss-taking element to look at you lot celebrating a victory. Mm-hmm. And I think that... 
obviously on one level there's an element of truth to that you know how on earth would you be kind of taking consolation from a classico that you've lost when it's your fifth in a row but actually there was when you consider it in its context which is where they come from which is the fact that this run of classicos basically begins with that one where where they were beaten in the start of the season 2000 sorry back in the season 2019 i think and this idea that you just sort of can't compete anymore that it, or at least you're not doing it properly and in in Saudi Arabia they had competed if if only in terms of having a bit of the ball creating some chances carrying the game to Madrid making Madrid feel uncomfortable and and of course when you're a new manager and you're trying to reinforce an idea actually it's really important that you send that message because you've got to convince your players Mm. never mind the people in Madrid or the people in Barcelona it's about your players and about reinforcing that and clearly that has happened Mm. Um, it's now 12 games without a defeat for Barcelona it's four goals scored in five, no, in six now of the last eleven matches because of this one, there was already five, uh, and and just the sense that something is happening now. Lots of things have changed, not just Chavi. Uh, the arrival in the winter window of four new players, of which I, th- I think you could argue all of them have played a part one way or the other. Mm-hmm. They didn't all play a part in this game, and Adama and and Alves didn't start the match, but they've all played a part. The the rehabilitation of Dembélé, but above all else, I think a shifting culture at the club has been the big thing. Sorry, also Pedri as well, who was injured for the and majority. And Pedri's return is massive. Yeah. Absolutely massive, yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, we're going to talk about some some, some individual players as well. You mentioned uh, Obama Yang. He scored seven goals for Barcelona in the league in a very short period of time, Sydney. I don't think anyone quite expected him to um, be as uh, tremendous right from the start as he has been. Although... Maybe we should have, because I was looking at his stats. I think this is a stat that I've that I've mentioned in the in previous podcasts, but but maybe not. He's now got eleven league goals this season: seven for Barca, four for Arsenal. It's the eleventh straight season that he's got into double figures for league goals, and in four different leagues as well. He's obviously an incredibly talented goal scorer, and he's doing just that. But. He looks in better shape than I expected him to be in. I mean, he's 32. He hadn't played much, but he, he, he looks in terrific shape. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? And, and he, he, when he first turned up, he didn't play the first couple of games. And, and Xavi actually said, you know, we need to kind of get him into what's always described as rhythm here, I suppose, mm-hmm. rhythm or, or, or match fitness. Mm-hmm. And it only took a couple of games. Mm. And then he went to Valencia. Is that his second match, I think? Or maybe even his first? I think it's his first start, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And he scores a hat-trick. And you sort of think, oh, and he does. He looks He looks slim. He looks tall. He looks strong. I mean, obviously, he looks tall. That's state of the bleeding obvious. But what I mean is, he he looks like an athlete. Yes, you know, and he, and he goes up against defenders, and you think he's not going to be pushed around. At the same time, as he's going to have the the agility and, and if you like the 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 kind of the grace to go away from defenders as well, to not necessarily have to buff it up against them, but he can take that if he has to. The movement to the first to, to the first post to the near post for the goal was really good. I do think Real Madrid were a little bit sluggish to go with him. But he, he understands the movement of his teammates around him much better than I thought. Because I must admit, I saw him as a, as a go-long kind of guy. I didn't necessarily see him as a, as a combinations sort of forward. And I say that, admit, uh, and I admit this from a position of relative ignorance mm-hmm. of him. Like, he's not someone I watched a huge amount. Um, I think the, the backheel flick, or whatever you want to call it, a spoiler, that he did yesterday for the Ferran Torres goal, Oof. I think is significant as well. Really, really lovely touch. He just seems to understand his teammates very well. And, and he came with confidence. He was saying last night after the game, he said, look, to be honest, I did expect to play well. Mm. I, I really did. I expected to turn up here and, and, and start playing really quite well, really quite quickly. 
But even I wasn't expecting it to be quite as good as this. Um, and he says, look, it helps when you've got good players around you. I think it's clearly helped that Xavi has embraced him. When Xavi himself, by the way, a few years ago, said something similar to what I've just said, that he wasn't sure if in a Barcelona structure, mm. Aubameyang was the type of striker that he would like. I think this is an important point to make, by the way. And if you like, I can make it in passing, but I don't know if it's one to pick up on a little bit more in depth. Go on. Look at the nature of the goals yesterday. For all the talk of Barca's DNA mm-hmm. and style, they're very direct. Mm. Well, I think you know very that's direct. where perhaps Xavi's Barcelona differs from Pep's Barcelona. They are sort of more direct, more aggressive. They can yeah. be more physical as well, right? Here's the, here's the caveat, though. You look back on that 6-2, mm-hmm. and that 6-2 was at least to begin with, maybe not by the end of the game, but to begin with, built upon Thierry Henry going very mm-hmm. deep, on the left-hand side beyond Sergio Ramos. So they were not necessarily direct as such, but they were vertical with, in that 6-2 as well. And I actually think this is one of the things, of course, that with time, we look back and it kind of misses over a little bit and you, you, you get left with the essence of something rather than maybe these caveats that we're now talking about. And Pep would do uh, fairly direct when he needed to. There were moments of, of, of pragmatism, which I think is seen by the, the role that was played, for example, at times by Seydou Keita. Uh, the, you know, there the were shifts. It wasn't always absolutely kind of puritanical mm. pepism. Puritanical pepism. That's that's, that's that could be the could be the pod name uh, for today. Let's see what um, uh, producer Al decides. Uh, we've spoken about Aubameyang. I want to ask you about Dembélé as well. How can yeah. he leave this Barca side now? How can <laughs> he go? Oh, but his best friend Aubameyang's banging in the goals as well. He's there. He, he's got this project. Everyone's in the Chavineta. How can he? How can he leave? I, I think this is actually a really, really good question and, and a really interesting one to see how he responds to this. Because when all of this stuff was starting to kick off, um, just before the January window opened, um, before they'd given the ultimatum, but the ultimatum came, what, I think halfway through January, January 20th, something like that. It was, I think it was 10 or 11 days before the window closed. Xavi kept saying, or said publicly a couple of times, well, he's told me he mm. wants to stay. The very heavy hint being his agents are telling him otherwise, or at the very least that there's an economic reason why he mm-hmm. might not stay. Now, Barcelona, when they announced the ultimatum, not Xavi, but Mateo Alemán, the um, what we call CEO, I suppose, of a club, he said, we assume that Dembélé has already got a club. And that's why he's not renewing, because he's already mm-hmm. got a club. That feeling, I think, has diminished. And they're actually thinking... Maybe he really hasn't. Maybe he really just didn't take seriously the fact that this was an ultimatum. <laughs> or he thought, I'm not going to be pushed. As he rightly said in his hmm. statement, I will not be blackmailed. And Dembele in that statement said, there are still negotiations going on. To which, I'll be honest, I said, I think I probably even said it on the podcast, well, there really aren't now. If you're coming out and saying blackmail, that's the end of it. You, you don't come back from that. But Dembele was like, no, there's still <laughs> conversations. Right, now, move it on a bit. Xavi wins the battle with the club. Because he says, look, this guy's useful. I want him to play and, and I think he can play well. Now, what has changed since then? And I think this is a really, really important point. At that point, Chavi was saying he's going to be important. Chavi was saying, I like him. Chavi was saying he wants to stay. And Chavi was saying I'm, I'm, he's a big part of my project. But it's one thing saying that. Dembele, in truth, at that point, still hadn't mm-hmm. seen it. He still hadn't. And while it's a slightly cruel word to use... Dembélé has been largely irrelevant in his Barcelona career. Yeah. In the last six weeks, he hasn't been. And I just wonder if that changes a mindset, because this actually says to him, look, this really is true. It really is true that we can make something with you. We can make this work. And if 
PSG or Juventus or Liverpool or, I don't know, Man United or whoever it is, are offering you more money, fine. Yes, they are. We don't have a lot of money. But really, is it going to be as good as this? Now, obviously, there's the risk that he gets injured. There's all of those. There's a risk that he reverts the type or, or whatever it may be. But I think he's young enough that now he can see a manager who actually really sees a role for him is building players in positions around him that work with him. And if you look at this in footballing terms, never mind the money, you look at this in footballing terms, he is in a position which I'm not sure he has ever really been in his Barcelona career. And as, as I've said before, and again, it sounds cruel, but it's, but it's worth stressing, he's been at Barcelona for four mm. years. This isn't a guy who's had a difficult season, or two difficult seasons. It's a guy who's basically not done very much. I mean, there's been periods when he's been really quite good, but it's been short in four years. And now I think he's been shown, maybe for the first time, you are central to this. You can really make this work if you stay. Because obviously earlier on, he's had Suarez and Griezmann and Messi in front of him. So even if he played well, he knew he wasn't necessarily a first choice. I think now he looks at this, if he looks at it like this, and I would like to think he does, and actually thinks, yeah, I can see how this works now. It does feel like he's closer perhaps now to staying than than leaving but we'll have to have to wait and see certainly looks like yeah i mean look we don't know what he has in his hands what's no. on his table what those offers look like and and look there's a there's a lovely spanish phrase which is what's the phrase uh, a powerful gentleman is mr money and mr money is a powerful he, gentleman he is he's a very powerful gentleman i was going to say he looks like he's enjoying himself dembele he, he never really that's really important but, but he never really looks like he's enjoying himself i mean he's he's, he's a hard no. person to read let's put it like that he is a hard person to read and look for example um, and again, I don't want to read too much into this, but as we're given so little to read, let's are we, read are we, too are much we playing, into it. Are we playing amateur psychologists? Not quite, but nearly, oh, sort okay, of. Okay. When he did that statement, when he said he wouldn't be blackmailed, big part of that statement was, remember, he said, after four years of listening hmm. to what people say about me, to people talking about me, to people uh, speaking on my behalf, and he hmm. meant the club, by the way, not just the media and the fans, but the media hmm. and the fans as well. This, that's it. It's over. I've had enough. It's not going to happen anymore. From now on, I'm going to reply. And he replied in that message and then stopped talking again. Yeah. So, so his version of events, we just don't really get it. <laughs> well, let's see if he continues to be as impressive on the pitch for the rest of the season as he has been in the last couple of weeks. I want to go back. I mean, he still makes mistakes, by the way. I mean, even last night, by the end of the game, he was, he was taking poor decisions again. Yes. But he's, he's so talented. Yes, he is so talented. He's a player that I've really enjoyed watching. Uh, primarily, yeah. I think, because I'm not a Barca fan, so I don't get frustrated when he gives the ball away. <laughs> That's which, probably which, true, which actually. Which is often, yeah. often the case, but, but he is a very exciting player uh, when he's at his best. I want to go back to, to, to Real Madrid and, and talk a little bit about, about Carlo Ancelotti, um, about how potentially in, damaged he might be by this performance and result coming 11 days 11 days after the uh, historic comeback against PSG. Football is a, it's a funny game. Uh, I had Real Madrid supporting mates, rather mm, extreme ones, but still with extreme views, calling for Ancelotti to be sacked. Really? Genuinely. Wow. Genuinely. Okay. Uh, there are ones that came into this game not particularly convinced that Carlo Ancelotti is the right manager for, for Real Madrid anyway. So it, it's not like they were completely in, in, impartial, but this sort of reinforced their, their their beliefs. You look on Twitter, which is never, uh, 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 it's never a good thing, uh, and, uh, <laughs> unless it's one of our uh, fabulously witty tweets. But uh, you look on Twitter and there were some 
pretty extreme reactions from from Real Madrid fans. What was he thinking, particularly at the start of the second half, when he goes to a very bizarre back three, which lasts for about two minutes? Because they're only 2-0 down. 11 days ago, they came back against PSG. They were 2-0 down on, on aggregate and they came back and, and won it. They didn't change anything up massively. They didn't, didn't start tinkering. They managed to do it. He changed to a back three at the start of the second half. They conceded two goals. It was very, very, very bizarre. I mean, look, my feeling is that what he was trying to change was to solidify the defence. Um, he removed Danny Carvajal, who was having a really difficult time with Ferran Torres. A really difficult time. Um, I think he was seeking protection rather than anything else. But I must admit, it surprised me. And as you say, it's ruined within minutes because yeah. Ferran is one-on-one, what is it, 10 seconds into the second half? Yeah. And then he's one-on-one again, what is it, two minutes later, I think, uh, when he scores. And then they score the, the fourth, mm-hmm. I think, six minutes after that, five, six minutes after that. And so it's kind of in tatters. And so it's okay. difficult to judge if that's really about the formation, to be perfectly honest, because they were kind of already collapsing anyway. Um, but it was bizarre. In terms of Ancelotti being sacked, I mean, before I get on to the kind of how do we judge Ancelotti, let me just say one thing. Ancelotti is partly the manager, in fact, very much the manager of Real Madrid. And, and forgive me if this sounds dismissive and it's not my, 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 my intention. He's the manager of Real Madrid yes. because there wasn't anyone else. Now, they were genuinely in a position in the summer because the, the options were closing down and as I think I've discussed before on the podcast, mm. a chance conversation ends up with him coming back. Mm. It, wasn't, it wasn't a plan, let's go and get Ancelotti. It was a conversation with Ancelotti about something else that kind of the idea started floating a little bit. So, oh, could, mm. could we actually do that? Yeah, yeah, we could do this. Oh, okay then. Well, let's do it. And so, first of all, if you do it now, who do you bring in? I suppose Raul is the ready-made replacement. Yeah. No, exactly. And if you do it in the summer, maybe in the summer. To be honest with you, I wouldn't be at all surprised if it happened in the summer anyway. Um, but you do it then at least in a, in, in a, in a sort of, if you like, a good environment. Mm-hmm. Having um, probably won the league. Having probably won the league, which brings us to the other bit. In terms of the criticism of Ancelotti, they are going to win the league almost certainly. Mm-hmm. Let's see what happens in the Champions League. I, I, you know, I don't think they will win the Champions League, but I don't think it's impossible. Um, I, 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 you know, again, I don't think it's very likely, but I think they might just about... Um, are they favourites against Chelsea? I don't know. It doesn't matter if they're favourites, but they've got a chance against Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something else at play here, which is... It's complex, because we can go round and round in circles in this, but, but see what you think about this idea. Ancelotti earlier in the season... One of the things I've really liked about Ancelotti is he doesn't really do bullshit, <laughs> right? He doesn't do pretending. And earlier in the season, he said quite clearly, look, you've got a player like Vinicius who's as quick as him. Why wouldn't you play on the counter-attack? I think he used the phrase, Vinicius tiene una, una moto. Vinicius has got a motorbike. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you use, use the counter-attack? He talked about trying to make his defenders pessimists to think about the worst-case scenario. And he quite openly and with no real problem embrace the idea of playing what's now always referred to in Spain as a bloque bajo, a low block, which I always find a, a slightly irritating term, but you, you, know, you know what it means, playing the team relatively deep and launching from there and coming from there and going quite long and releasing Vinicius quite early. And Benzema is an absolutely brilliant facilitator of the counter-attack. Mm-hmm. I also think, by the way, Benzema is a brilliant player around the edge of the area in tight spaces, but he's a brilliant facilitator of the counter-attack. And so you... You, you have this scenario in which Ancelotti says this. And then, of course, bit by bit, you start to get this sort of this generation of an idea, 
which I think is sometimes an idea not really based on how they're performing, just sort of based on an idea of what Real Madrid should be, the <laughs> grandiosity of this club, that says, why aren't you pressing higher up the pitch? Why aren't you pushing people back? And of course, that crystallises very, very, very clearly in Paris. Mm-hmm. And it crystallises in Paris because they were bloody awful, right? No two ways about it. But I don't think they were just bloody awful because they played a low block. I think there's all sorts of other reasons for it. But it crystallises on this idea. And then Ancelotti publicly says, after that PSG game, and we talked about it on this podcast, we are going to try and play a bit higher up the pitch. Now, at that point, I must admit, I thought, why? And can you actually re, if you like, retrain this team halfway through the season? And are all those reasons that you said earlier in the season, there's a reason why we play this? What, are those reasons no longer valid? Uh, Is it no longer a good idea to play this way? And I don't think you can make this Real Madrid team, and again, I don't want to point fingers, but this Real Madrid team, when the midfield is Casemiro, Cross and Modric, who are brilliant players, but I don't think you can make them suddenly a pressing, a hungry pressing midfield. I don't think you can do that to them. Hmm. Um, And so I think what happens is you create a degree of insecurity about what your identity is, what exactly it is you're trying to play or trying to be, and you end up almost being not one thing nor the other. Yeah, Ancelotti, after after the game, I heard him heard him speak, and he said, we tried to press high up the pitch, it didn't work, as a sort of uh, explanation as to what had gone wrong. Uh, and also, you know, there's, there's a broader context here, which of course is the PSG game, as we've discussed. We were really excited by that last 20 minutes or so, what was it, half an hour, 20 minutes, I'm not sure how long it was. And I am as guilty as anyone in this, completely enamoured with Modric and everything that Modric mm. did. But it is also true, if we look at this coldly, that three quarters of this tie against PSG, that midfield was overrun. Mm. And that it may well have made a difference when Kamavinga came on, releasing others and changing, the, if you like, the dynamic. And never never has a word been better chosen than the, the dynamic mm. of, of that midfield. Mm. Uh, the, remember last week, last season as well, the midfield kind of got overrun against Chelsea as well, didn't it? Yes. Although, curiously enough, they didn't against Liverpool, who in theory are the team that should overrun you. Yeah. Because that's the way Liverpool played. Were they play. at full strength then? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, I, I can't remember, but Tony Cruz played brilliantly. Yeah. Certainly at Valdebebas, Tony oh, Cruz yes. was absolutely fantastic. It's true. true. All right, listen. The top three looks like this. Real Madrid are on 66 points. Sevilla are on 57 after their seventh draw in, in nine games. Yeah. Um, Barca are on 54 with a game in hand. So, listen, if Barca win that game in hand, there'll be nine points behind Real Madrid, nine games left. Listen, it's 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 almost certainly not going to happen. Real Madrid are almost certainly going to win the league, but perhaps not as comfortably as they thought yeah, they, they but, might. Which, of course, has an impact on the Chelsea game. Yes. It might not It might not have an impact in terms yes. of the league, but it might have an impact in terms of how Real Madrid prepare for the Chelsea game. Either Some side excellent of points. Of course, there is a an international break now, so there's no La Liga football next weekend. Uh, it returns on the weekend of the second of April, where Real Madrid travel to Vigo, somewhere they've uh, traditionally found it quite difficult uh, in recent years, and then a few days later they travel to Chelsea as well. So you do get the feeling that there is n- no way that they can emotionally risk resting players for for Vigo when they've got to go to Chelsea a couple of days later. Uh, Barcelona, uh, their next game is a big one. Uh, it's at Seville, isn't it? It's, in, it's at home to Sevilla. So it's second. Oh, it's at home, sorry, not, not at Sevilla. It's second right. against third before they take on Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League. Uh, guys, I told you we were going to spend the whole podcast talking about the uh, Classico. That's what's happened. Uh, if there's anything else 
you'd like us to talk about. We will do so tomorrow, I promise, on the mm. Q&A pod for patrons. Uh, this week, we've got Real Madrid Femenino against Barca Femini on Tuesday night in the uh, Champions League quarterfinal first leg. Uh, we've also got Spain playing Albania on Saturday at the RCDE Stadium. It's the first game in Barcelona in 18 years. And then Iceland next Tuesday at the uh, glorious Estadio Riazor in La Coruña. Uh, we're going to be over at Patreon for the rest of the week. There's no La Liga football uh, for us to talk about this week, but there is still, I, I think, plenty of topics uh, for us to touch upon. So if you'd like to become a patron and get loads of bonus content about Spanish football, you'd be very welcome along. Uh, otherwise, we're back here next Monday, as always. Adios, amigos. Cheerio. Cheerio.